Well, before we begin, we have a uh, special request for prayer on behalf of our brother Yoon Nam. <clears throat> Some of you have heard already, but um, his father passed away um, this past Friday. Uh, he, his father has been in, ill for several years, and so it was difficult, but God had definitely been gracious and sovereign in preparing Yoon and his mom for this, this loss. Bob and I and many of you had the opportunity to minister to him directly, personally this past week and want to just let you know that Yoon and his mom are doing well. Um, they're holding on to the word of Christ and Holy Spirit is indeed comforting them and strengthening them during this difficult time. And so, uh, on your knees this week, I would ask you to join uh, the leaders of the church in remembering Yoon and his family and praying for them lifting them up uh, to the Lord and that God might indeed um, abide in them and strengthen them through this difficult time. Well, we are continuing our study uh, back in John 14 in a way, um, studying the Holy Spirit. If you remember several months ago, we kind of did a tangent study on the Holy Spirit, how Christ is no longer with us. Christ has left us, but not as orphans. He has left us under the care of the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And so as New Testament, New Covenant believers, uh, we find clear, comprehensive understanding of the person and the identity, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is pivotal for us to glorify God, to grow and to honor the Lord in our, in our lives. So we were undergoing a six, seven, eight part study uh, maybe nine, part study on the Holy Spirit. Our previous studies have centered upon the deity of the Holy Spirit, that He is not a force. He is not a cosmic force or cosmic spirit. He is not a creation of God. He is a person. He is God Himself. We studied the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit ministered in the Old Testament to Old Testament saints like Abraham, Moses, um, David, um, Daniel. And we looked at the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit for all New Covenant, New Testament Christians. So after the cross, the Holy Spirit dwells in us permanently. We also did a study on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how baptism means that description of how we were saved, how we were united with Christ, how we were united into the church, a one-time event that occurs at salvation, not to be repeated again. And then in our last study, we looked at um, how being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Galatians 5. There is no command in the Bible where God commands us to be uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. No command for us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's all the work of God. That is not in our control, not in our power. But there are explicit commands for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To walk and to live by the Holy Spirit. Now today's study and next week's study centers upon how are we to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How does this happen? Practically, how can I be filled as a believer? How can I grow as a Christian? How can I grow in holiness 
as a child of God. Now, to introduce this study, I want to turn your attention to infomercials. To infomercials. Late at night, if you're watching TV and you're surfing channels, and you'll see a lot of these infomercials. And if you're, these are a telling glimpse, a window to the culture of our country today. If uh, an alien, if an ET were to come down from our Mars and he would watch infomercials, he would immediately conclude that we are a society obsessed with health and physical fitness. That everyone is consumed with their bodies, eating healthy and being healthy, being physically fit, if you were to watch these infomercials. These infomercials are so popular um, that these uh, fitness trainers are now household names. I could name off some of these men and women, and you wouldn't know who they are. Uh, Billy Blanks, right? Some of you guys are... Who, who is he? What does he do? Taibo. I've, I've been to your houses. Some of you guys have Taibo, right? <laughs> Tony Little. What does he, what does he sell? Come on, don't try to act all godly. I don't watch TV. Um, <laughs> the gazelle, right? <laughs> that guy, he's all buff and he's tight shorts. Um, Mary Windsor. The sister should know who he is, who she is. Windsor Pilates. Right. Uh, Jake Steinfeld. You guys don't know him by his last name, but it's Body by Jake. Last name is Steinfeld, I found out this week. Or Jack LaLanne. We all know him. There seems to be in the past several years, decades, a resurgence in physical exercise. Exercise gyms are sprouting up all over the place. LA Fitness, 24-Hour Fitness, Bally's and Curves. I've seen curves all over the place. My wife tells me it's a place for women to work out. Men are walking, running, bicycling, lifting weights, all to get into good shape and to lose weight and to be healthy. Not only that, beyond just exercising, Americans are watching their diet more than ever before. From watching calories, avoiding carbs, sugars, fried fruits, uh, drinking diet sodas, not eating after 6 p.m., I mean, multivitamins, protein shakes, whey protein shakes, even ginseng, right? Oriental medicine, uh, all to get into shape, lose weight. These diets are popular. The zone diet, I mean, the South Beach diet. I've been to your houses. I've seen these books on your bookshelves. Uh, The Atkins diet. I mean, it's so much so that, I mean, Krispy Kreme stock has fallen because so many Americans are watching their carbs. Um, you know, every, any restaurant, TGIF or a Subway, there's a low-carb meal, Atkins-friendly diet meals. Well, a few years ago, Surin and I thought we need to eat healthier. And we found out that white rice has a high glycemic, in a high glycemic index. It means uh, it raises blood sugar quickly, so it's not good for your health. At the same time, we found out that brown rice has a lower glycemic content or index, I don't know. And so blood sugar rises slowly, supposed to be healthier. So, I don't know what I was thinking, but we decided to have brown rice only at home. Now, for non-Asians in our church, that's like akin to wheat bread, 
right? I mean, just weak wheat bran nuts bread compared to Wonder White bread. So for long, for nine months, we had nothing but brown rice at home. I'd come home and it'd be Korean barbecue. I'm like, yes. And <laughs> but it's brown rice, so it just nullifies the sweetness of Korean barbecue. You know, I, I've invented this combination called KFC hot wings with rice. Magic. But KFC with brown rice, it's not magic. I don't know what it is. The clincher, the day we quit um, brown rice at home was, Sir and I were making California rolls at home. <laughs> with brown rice. And after a few bites, Sir and I both agreed, no more brown rice. This is now working for us. I said to her, Sir and I, I'll run 10 miles a day. Right? I'll avoid all snacks. I'll do anything to be healthier. But let's go back to white rice. Right? Praise God. Well, I'm still... It's an effort, isn't it? Trying to be physically fit. Uh, tonight's the last night of Meals on Wheels. And in a way, I'm sad. But in a way, I'm glad. Because that Meals on Wheels thing is killing me. It's uh, killing my health. Because, you know, you, the food is so good. And lovingly, caringly brought to our home. I have to have seconds. I can't stop at one. And so we're all trying to watch our weight, exercise, and to be healthy. And we know by now that there are no gimmicks. There are no shortcuts. There are no magic pills to being healthy and fit. Right? I've seen supplements where it says you'll take this, you'll lose weight. And then in fine print, you need to exercise and eat healthy. Like, why buy this if I have to exercise on top of it? There are no shortcuts. The only way is to eat healthy and exercise regularly. regularly. And as true as that is for our physical fitness, it is equally true for our spiritual fitness. There is no other way. It is exactly the same. To grow as a Christian, to grow in holiness, godliness, and to mature as a saint, we want this magic pill. We want a magic sermon. We want an instant, a, a quantum leap in our maturity and holiness by going to a retreat, going to a conference, having some spiritual leader lay hands and pray for us. And that's what we desperately desire. But simply, it does not exist. It is fool's gold. There are some... Bumper sticker, poor theology out there where it says, stop trying and start trusting. Right? Christianity, it's not about trying but trusting as a, as a Christian. Or let go and let God. The way to grow as a Christian is just surrender. And just get on this, um, you know, the LAX people mover, like horizontal escalators. You get on and just relax. And it'll take you where God wants you to go, to maturity and holiness. Oh, those... um. Those statements are popular, but they're wrong. They're poor theology. Madly, badly mistaken. Those who claim that all effort is wrong, they're badly mistaken. R.C. Sproul said, There are no quick and easy paths to spiritual maturity. The soul that seeks a deeper level of maturity must be prepared for a long and arduous task. Don Whitney said, I maintain that the only road to Christian maturity and godliness passes through sacrifice and the practice of spiritual disciplines. 
Pastor John Owen, God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. God works with us, not without us. To grow as a believer, your physical effort, your sacrifice, your discipline, self-control are all required and necessary. Without it, it's fool's gold. You're just waiting in the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away, watching the ships pass away. And after 10 years, you're still sitting on that dock of the bay. And there is no growth, no maturity, no growth in holiness. Someone who understood this was, surprisingly, a man named Pistol Pete Maravich. Um, a very good basketball player, former, uh, many years ago, scored more points than anyone in college history. A very electrifying basketball player of his time. He became a Christian in his mid-30s, and he suddenly died in January 1988 of a heart attack at age 40. A year before he died, he said this in, his, in, a, in a interview, quote, the key to my ability was repetition. I practiced and practiced and practiced again. I gave basketball my total commitment. I tried everything I could in every way to perfect my skills. It was like an obsession. It paid off for me as a player. I'm not so sure in life. Listen to this. If I had given that kind of devotion to my faith, which is what I do now, I would be a better person, better Christian, better husband, father, in the long run. We don't have to take Pistol Pete Maravich's uh, statement for, for value. We can learn from the Bible because that is exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. What are these myths? You know, the formulaic prayer, you pray this every day and you'll grow. Or there is this special godly man and you touch him and you will mature. Or have him pray for you. Or experience this, or eat this, or don't do this, this formula. And instantly, you'll overcome sin. Paul said, Timothy, no, have nothing to do with these silly myths. Ridiculous. Instead, train yourself for godliness. The word train, other versions have discipline or exercise. It's the word gymnazo. It's where we get the word gymnasium and gymnastics. The word means to exercise or discipline. Paul is saying discipline yourself. Give Give yourself wholly for the purpose of godliness. For verse 8, while bodily training, bodily fitness is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's what Pistol Pete said. If I had given that physical effort to my Christian life, I'd be better off. So just as we give physical effort, we sacrifice and we discipline ourselves for sports or to play an instrument or for work or for school, likewise, in the spiritual realm, it's not just spiritual. We need to put in that physical effort to gain spiritual benefit. 
spiritual benefit. Many of the verses in the New Testament talk about this. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul said, Do you not know that in a race all runners run to compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all these things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But us, we need to exercise self all the more greater self-control because our prize is not a perishable wreath. It is an imperishable wreath. Therefore, it says, verse 27, I discipline my body. I train my body. I buffet my body and keep it under control, self-control, that I myself not be disqualified after having preached to others. Second Peter 1.5, Peter says, Make every effort, physical, he's talking about physical, strenuous, vigorous effort, to add to your faith, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly love, so that you will not be ineffective as servants of Christ. Titus 2, 11 and 12, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this grace of God is not automatic. We don't get spiritually zapped by the Holy Spirit where it appears and all of a sudden we're mature. No, the grace appears to us so that, verse 12, it might train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, there's that word again, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Last verse, 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That word abstain is in the middle voice. The verb is to act upon yourself. We ourselves must exercise self-control so that we abstain from these worldly passions which wage war against ourselves. It's the idea of holding ourselves back holding ourselves off from things that hinder us in our Christian faith. But, sad to say, uh, most Christians do not practice self-control, are not involved in spiritual disciplines. Born-again Christians, 95% have Bibles in their homes. And when they did a survey, how many of you read the Bible once a week? Less than 57% read the Bible once a week. How many read it once a day? Like 6%. How many of you never read the Bible at all? Or rarely read the Bible? 75, 77%. Christians are in a word undisciplined. Raven Edmund said, Ours is an undisciplined age. The old disciplines are breaking down. Albert Edward Day said, We Protestants are an undisciplined people. In the name of religious freedom, we give ourselves to video games, to TV shows, to music, to internet, to all these frivolous pursuits. And therefore, in the name of religious freedom, we are undisciplined. Jay Adams, yeah, you guys know what Jay Adams is? A Christian counselor. He's an older, godly older man. I think he's, um, he wrote this when he was 
experienced uh, in counseling, Christian counseling for over decades. And this is what he said, after counseling Christians for decades, quote, too many Christians give up. They want the change too soon. What they really want is change without work. They give up when they're on the threshold of success. They stop before receiving. It usually takes at least three weeks to develop a good godly habit. And it takes about three more weeks to make that godly habit part of yourself. Yet many Christians do not continue even for three days. If they do not receive instant success, they get discouraged and they quit. And so in life, you run into Christian after Christian who have given up the Christian life. They're still in the church. They still call themselves Christians. They participate in Christian activities. They serve, but they don't commune with God. They don't walk with the Holy Spirit. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. He hears something like this all the time. He wrote, Sure, I would like to be the kind of Christian that you describe and that I read about in the Bible and in Christian biographies, but those people must be super saints. I've tried time and again to be like them. I've tried to do all those things in your sermons and read about in the Bible and in Christian books. But I've given up. It doesn't work. I do fine for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. But the first thing you know, there I am again, battling the same old habits, the same old sins. It's like climbing this mountain and reaching the top only to find myself at the bottom and having to climb it all over again, I never seem to make any progress. End quote. Well, that is the state of the Christian church in America. And for many Christians, they've given up. And they're waiting for this magic pill. They're waiting to be zapped by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is clear. There's only one road to godliness. And that is through discipline. That is through training. That is through hard work. Now, anytime we come to this point, we, I hear many excuses from Christians. The top one, the top excuse, the top complaint, ends with the letter L. All right? I'll give you a special point if you can guess this word, letter, letter L. All right? That's legalistic. Legalism. What? I have to make an effort? It's like, shouldn't Christianity be like, like true love? It's fall in love and it's just spontaneous and emotion and it's passionate and it's hot. Right? That's Christianity. So, forcing myself to wake up and to pray, that's legalistic. No, I'll just lay down and sleep and wait for that passion to come. You know, you get up and pray. You get up and read the Bible. You discipline yourself because that's legalistic. That's legalism. Right. If it's regimented, it is not a relationship. It is religion. It is ritual. It is legalism. We hear that again and again. Well, let me compare um, six differences between a legalistic approach to spiritual disciplines and the spirit-led approach to spiritual disciplines. And by the time we're done, you will conclude with me, no, the Bible, what the Bible proposes is anything but legalistic. And what we propose at Cornerstone is anything but legalistic. Six differences between the, the legalistic approach and the spirit-led approach. 
First of all, the legalistic approach is fueled and motivated by the flesh. It is motivated by pride. The legalistic approach says, no problem. You know, I'm a disciplined guy. You know, I, I play high school sports, college sports. I know I'm not afraid of effort and sacrifice and discipline. I can do this. So I'll wake up and read the Bible. I'll memorize scripture. I'll go to Bible study. I'll go to church. I'll pray an hour a day. But what's the focus? It's I, I, I. The strength comes from the person. It is dependent upon the flesh. It is fueled by pride, having a high view of themselves. They esteem themselves as, quote, little sinners. In pride, they commit themselves to these rules and regulations. And as they excel in these areas, what happens? They put on merit badges. They say, look at me. It's like that Pharisee, right, in Luke 18. Everybody, look how much I do for God. Uh, look at all my spiritual disciplines. And he prays about himself. Why would he do that? Because it is motivated by pride. That's legalism. In Colossians 2, 23, Paul said, um, These are all destined to perish. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. But he says, it is false humility. That is indeed legalism. While the, the legalistic approach is fueled by pride, dependence upon the flesh, the spirit-led approach is led, fueled, motivated, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The believer says, I know John 15.5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I understand this. I can't read the Bible. I can't understand Scripture. I can't rightly pray. I can't rightly serve the church. I can't go to God with a right heart because I'm a great sinner. Sin is alive in my flesh. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, without His empowerment, I can do nothing. Therefore, in utter humility... He or she depends wholly on the power of the Holy Spirit. And if there's any kind of growth in his or her life, he gives all glory, all credit to God and the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Ian Murray says of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 19, became a believer and he penned resolutions. And you read those resolutions, it's humbling. I mean, these resolutions are radical. I mean, resolved. I will with all my power give myself for the purpose of religion. So every day he, he took copious notes on what he ate and he wrote down the results of his diet. And if it made him tired, he would not eat that meal again because he didn't want to have his mind dulled when he read his Bible, when he prayed. I mean, he, he spent 13 hours every day in reading and prayer. Hours in prayer to God. I mean, he made these radical resolutions at the age of 19. At the age of 34, after being in the ministry as a pastor for several years, he said, I am far from repudiating the earnestness of those first days, but I now come to see them in a fuller way. I pursued holiness with far greater diligence and earnestness than I ever pursued anything in my life. 
But yet it was with too great a dependence on my own strength, which afterwards proved a great damage to me. I did not know then my extreme feebleness and weakness in every manner of way and the bottomless depths of secret corruption and deceit there was in my heart. End quote. He said, I'm committed to those resolutions. And when I wrote them, I did it out of pride, relying upon my flesh. Now I realize in the fullest sense how sinful I am. I understand Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful, desperately sick, beyond cure, who can understand it? And I now, I'm committed to those resolutions, but more and more in utter humility, I am practicing those disciplines, depending on the Holy Spirit, and not in myself. Edward said, the believer, if led by the Holy Spirit, is first led to the valley of humiliation. And there in this valley of humiliation, he discovers his own pride in striving to be godly according to the flesh. So, I'm sure in different measures you've experienced it. Where you try to be godly in the flesh as a young believer. And the Holy Spirit superintends that road and it leads to the humiliation where you find that your motivation, you're motivated by your pride rather than the Holy Spirit. And then he said, it is in this valley of humiliation that the believer is humiliated. Why? So that he might depend completely on God to sanctify him. And I love this. I mean, I, I love this. John Bunyan described this valley of humiliation as rich and green. He said, I have known many laboring men that have good land in the valley of humiliation. For indeed, it is a very fruitful soil and it brings forth much bountiful harvest. Many humble saints prosper there. One pilgrim said, I never saw him better in all his pilgrimage than he was in that valley. Here he will lie down, embrace the ground, and kiss the very flowers that grew in this valley of humiliation. Legalism takes pride in one's own accomplishments, in one's, oneself, in one's flesh. The Spirit-led way leads to the valley of humiliation. And we lie down and kiss the fruits that are born in this valley. The fruits of being humble before God and be depending upon Him for all things. That's the first difference. The second difference is that the legalistic approach enforces one's convictions on others. On others. This is the Taliban approach. This is the ministry of vice and virtue. I am proud to say, and I hope this is the case, we have no such ministry at Cornerstone. We have many different ministries, but no ministry of vice and virtue. We don't force or twist anyone's arm to come to church, anyone to come to flock, come to retreats. We don't have, tell anyone to do anything. It's up to you. You know, the door swings both ways, sink or swim, right? Because last we want is for people to do things for wrong reasons and to have a legalistic culture at Cornerstone and where we're enforcing our convictions on one another. That's the legalistic approach. The spirit-led approach is you enforce your convictions on yourself. 
It is the middle voice, abstaining. You're acting upon yourself. Right? It's self-discipline. It is self-control. Edward's resolutions, it is not resolved. I'm going to make everyone at our church pray for three hours a day. That was not his resolution. His resolution is resolved. I will do this. I will abstain. I will give my effort. Third difference is that the legalistic approach is motivated to be seen by others. Legalism at the core is atheistic. It's spiritual atheism. It is religion in the complete worldly sense, man-centered sense. It is Matthew 23, 5, the Pharisees. Everything they do is done for men to see. Everything they do is to be seen by others, and that's legalism. The spirit-led approach is motivated to be seen by God, seen only by God, God who sees in secret. Matthew 6, 1 through 6, Christ said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. That's the spirit-led approach. Therefore, when you pray, don't go out in front of the marketplace and use many words and babbling and pray many prayers. Go to your closet. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you're fasting, you know, don't make it obvious. Oh, look how much I'm doing for the Lord. I'm fasting for Christ. Don't do that. Put on your best clothes. Anoint your head with oil. I said no one will know you're fasting except for God. Fourth difference. Legalistic approach. The goal is outward conformity. Where discipline is the end. Where the goal is to be disciplined. Is to be self-controlled. It is to live a certain lifestyle. You feel that you've achieved if you prayed an hour a day or read X amount of chapters a day. You feel you've achieved if you've conformed externally to some extra biblical standard. It is outward performance, outward conformity, and that is the end. The spirit-led approach, the goal is not outward conformity. It is transformation of the inner man. It is internal in a sense, it goes beyond. Like, who cares about these disciplines? Like, at the end of the day, that's not what, what it's about. It's not about hours or chapters or verses you memorize or how, much, how many books you read. At the end of the day, are you like Christ? Have you, your character, your, your conduct, your attitude, has that changed? That is the issue. So spiritual disciplines, it's a means to true change. So change like this. You know, I heard a, heard a guy at our church, he asked for forgiveness to people under him at work because they did something wrong and he was right. But he was kind of harsh with them and rebuking them. So he went to people under him and he asked for forgiveness. He said, I sinned against you. Man, that's true change. You know, wife is just prone to get angry. She has a little attitude of anger and righteous indignation. And that edge is gone. Now she's predisposed to be gracious and kind and gentle. That is why we are committed to spiritual disciplines. 
You know, someone is prone to be anxious and be afraid, being stressed. And through spiritual disciplines, they're more like Christ. They're courageous. They trust the Lord. They're confident in Christ. These are the goals of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are a means to humility, graciousness, patience, being loving, being kind, being obedient to God, being holy. Fifth difference. In the legalistic approach, they have, again, a form of godliness. They lack the power. Why? Because their faith is in the disciplines. They trust in their works for sanctification. Second Timothy three five. They have a form of godliness, but they, they they deny its power. What's the power of godliness? It is true change. Why is that? Because they trust in the disciplines. Their faith is in what they do in their works. In the spirit led approach. Though vigorously committed to practicing the spiritual disciplines, our eyes are not fixed upon the disciplines. We're not looking at the clock. We're not counting the chapters. Our eyes are fixed on Christ. We're working hard. We're making every effort. You know how you, when you work out, like you, you, know, you keep a chart. Some of you guys do, right? You know, your biceps, triceps, you know, your chest, and you just measure and how many reps you did and you count your calories and protein and right? Well the legalistic approach does that spiritually. But the spirit led approach, we don't care about that because the source of our sanctification is not in our works, not how much we work. The source is Christ. Therefore we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So our faith is in Christ, not in the works. Galatians 3.2, Paul said, you know, he starts the letter, you foolish Galatians, and he says, I just want to know one thing. Short letter here, just one thing. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Were you saved because of works or because of faith? Therefore, he says, verse 3, You foolish Galatians, after beginning with the Holy Spirit, after being saved, are you now trying to attain your goal of godliness by human effort? That's foolish. We were saved by grace through faith. We are to be sanctified by grace through faith. We grow in holiness by faith in Christ, not in our works. Ever working, but trusting in Christ. Therefore, he says in Galatians 5.16, at the end of the letter, so I say, live by the Spirit, follow the Word of God, then you will give yourself wholly to self-control and discipline, but you will trust in Christ. I mean, Hebrews 11, all these Old Testament saints, and what's the first two words of every, that comes before every saint? It's by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. How did they conquer? How did they overcome? How did they preach? How did they suffer? It was not through the works, but it's by faith in God. A final one, final difference. And for me, this is the most personal. 
the legalistic approach results in slavery. Enslaves you, slaves me. It's binding. It literally chokes out the vitality of our Christian faith. Paul said again, Galatians 2.23, such regulations have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, and it leads to slavery. My first five years as a Christian was in this kind of environment, a legalistic environment. I have lived and ministered in a legalistic Christian community before. I've been in Egypt, and I don't want to go back. I never want to go back. I mean, we had six guys live together, and we slept in one room. Right? And I feel pity for the other guys because if you know I, uh, you know, if you know me, you know I don't sleep quietly. So we slept in one room. Woke up every morning at 5:30 and ran two miles. And we did quiet time, you know, like throughout the year, out in the open, right, like under a tree or by the, you know, by the street, so that we would stay awake. And then every night we had prayer meeting, and we could not talk to women. Like there's a women's apartment and men's apartment. We run together. We could even say hi if we said hi. We got rebuked later, right? I mean, we would, we would eat meals, and it was all regulated, regimented, all for discipline. We had a public Bible reading chart in our living room. And every, everyone's name, you would have, like, number of chapters you read that week. It was like a competition. So I was like, a, you know, kind of a dumb 19-year-old kid. So what do I do? I read Psalms, right? <laughs> so I'm killing everybody. I'm ahead of everyone, right? Because I'm reading Psalms, right? They're reading, like, Ezekiel. I'm, I'm ahead, right? I mean, we would, they would, we would mark how many people we witnessed to every day, every week. That kind of life, the drudgery of discipline, it led to just my, my life, my Christian life being choked out, squeezed out. My passion for Christ was just utterly set aside. It was drudgery. It was legalism in the worst form. I never want to go back. Spirit-led approach results in, and this is the difference, it results in freedom. It really does. And if you would commit yourself to self-discipline, self-control, you will experience liberation. You will experience freedom. It is like someone who plays piano masterfully. And they have this freedom to just, just play music. And you sit there and you go, wow, I'd be just so great to play an instrument that well. Well, how did they get to that point? It was through hours and hours of repetition, discipline, and self-control and sacrifice. You see someone play play sports. When I see a guy play basketball, and he's just able to just, you know, work me and school me and go around me and score. Man, I go, when I was younger, I could do that, right? (laughs) I go, how did he get there? Through hours and hours of practice and dedication and sacrifice, That's freedom. Likewise, spiritual discipline, when it's led by the Holy Spirit, grants us freedom and grace. To do what? To follow Christ. To grow in holiness. To grow in maturity. Edward said this, This desire for practical holiness is in all Christians. If you are a Christian, God has given you a religious affection. And what is that affection? You want to follow Christ. 
You want to be holy more than anything in this world. More than making money, more than marriage, more than a house, more than any comfort. You want holiness. Spiritual disciplines will grant you the freedom to this end. And we see this in the church to different measure where some believers are freed from self-centeredness. Here I am, I'm so petty, you know, I'm hypersensitive, I'm self-centered, I'm selfish, and here is this person. He doesn't care about himself. She considers others better than herself. How does she get this? I want to be free from my selfishness. I want to be free from my pride, my anger, my envy, my jealousy. Man, my discontentment, Pastor James. I am overwhelmed and riddled with discontentment and it paralyzes me. I want to be holy and be freed from discontentment. How can this be possible in my life? It's through self-discipline. Hatred, immorality, impure thoughts. Spiritual disciplines will give you freedom from that. Freedom to rise above some people's drama-filled life. You know, you talk to some people and just, just there's no end. <laughs> it's just, just it's like it's like soap opera. It's like you know, Survivor and all the other you know reality shows. One to one. It's just it's just complex. Oh, brother, don't you want to be free from this and rise above it and just follow Christ? Yes. How? Read the Bible. Right? Commit to self-discipline, self-control, and sacrifice. Spiritual disciplines. The verse, maybe that you might have forgot all of this. Just remember this verse then. Psalm 119.32 I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. I love that. You know, God set our hearts free. God has enlarged my heart. Therefore, like Alice and Felix, right? I mean, just I can just run, like Maurice Green, although he lost. I mean, I can just Justin Gatlin won, right? I mean, I have to run like to be the fastest man in the world. I can just run and leave everybody in my dust. Well, God has set us free if we will just run in His commands, day in and day out, morning and night, meditate upon Him. He will grant us such freedom and encumbrances of sin. So, from this point on, we're going to transition. For the rest of our time today and next week, we're going to look at the various spiritual disciplines. The first spiritual discipline, this is the first one. The first effort you and I must commit ourselves to is to mortify sin. Mortify sin. Colossians 3, put to death. Mortician, kill sin. What do you mean? I'm dead to sin. That's right, Colossians 3. Sin is dead. We are alive in Christ. We are set free by Christ. But sin is still alive in our flesh. So therefore, a counting term, count it dead, reckon it dead, kill it, destroy sin. Anywhere you find it, He is our enemy. Do not coexist. Destroy it. Because to become Christ-like is to be holy. Leviticus 19.2 Be holy just as I am holy. To be Christ-like means to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 Without holiness, there is no genuine discipleship. 
John Owen said, sin sets itself against every act of holiness and against every degree we grow to in holiness. Let not that man think he makes any progress in his Christian life apart from holiness. This is the first area we progress in as Christians. It's not, okay, you understand what I'm saying, right? It's not in the, our progress is not how many chapters, how long we pray or how much we serve. It's this area of personal holiness. Apart from it, there is no growth. And because sin sets itself against holiness, we must mortify sin. How do we mortify sin? Three steps. Three-pronged approach to mortifying sin. First is, look at Christ. Look at our goals. See what holiness looks like. We have our own definition of holiness. It is Omission, what I don't do. We need to see holiness in the complete picture. And we do that by looking at Christ. Looking at holiness incarnate. That's why after five years of studying Matthew, I said, let's go study John. Because I want to see Christ before my eyes every Sunday. I want to set before the loveliness, the beauty, the attractiveness of Christ's holiness, the sweetness of Him before our people every Sunday. Meditate upon the life and ministry and the words of Christ. Think long and hard. Gaze deep into the scriptures that describe the holiness of Christ. Comprehend Christ and His holiness. Second step. See sin as God sees it. See it, and the Puritans described it so well. The exceedingly wickedness of sin. Commit to a deep and long meditation the vileness and the wickedness of your sin. Give it biblical terms. Right? Biblical terms. Call it what it is. Call it rebellion. Call it idolatry. Call it theft. Right? Call it adultery. Immorality. Don't give the psychologized terms for it. Give it biblical terms and have a serious view of our sinfulness. Edwards committed himself to meditating on his sinfulness and his conclusion upon his own sins was infinite upon infinite are my sins. Infinite upon infinite. A century ago, J.C. Ryle said that the dim and indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false practices of the present day. I believe that one of the chief reasons of the church in the 19th century of its weakness is a lack of understanding about our our sins. J.I. Packer said, To say that our first need in life is to learn about sin may sound strange, but in the sense intended it is profoundly true. If you have not learned about sin, you cannot understand yourself or your fellow man or the world you live in. And you cannot understand the Christian faith. If you have not learned about sin, you will not be able to make heads or tails of the Bible. For the Bible is an exposition of God's answer to the problem of sin. Unless, and unless you have that problem clearly before you, you will keep missing the point of what it says. It is clear, therefore, that we need to fix in our minds what our ancestors would have called clear views of sin. Let me give you just one more 
illustration, a quote from a, a Puritan pastor. One of the most tragic days in the history of England is, was August 17, 1662. A tragic day where it was the last day for many pastors where they would be able to preach to their congregations before they were exiled. Because they would not conform to the Church of England, in essence, uh, English form of the Roman Catholic religion, because they would not abide by the Book of Common Prayers and the polity of the Church of England, and because they, would, they committed themselves to preaching the gospel of justification by faith alone, they were called nonconformists. They were called outlaws. So on this day, 2,500 pastors were exiled. They were forbidden to preach the gospel. And if you preached the gospel, you were sent to jail. 3,000 nonconformists, pastors and, and laity, were killed. 60,000 Christians, Christian families, were exiled because they believed in the gospel of Christ. There is a book out there, and I'm, I'm eyeing it, you know, when I see it on eBay or other places. One day I'll get my hand on it, I won't be outbid. The book is called Farewell Sermons, a compilation of 24 sermons that were preached on that last Sunday. 24 pastors preaching that last sermon to their church, church they love, and they can never minister again. And I've heard that from men who have read this book, that all 24 sermons, the common theme was, God's will. No bitterness, no anxiousness, no, no anger or hatred, really just joy in Christ at God's sovereign will being, being revealed. One of the sermons, a, a pastor, a Puritan pastor said this, and when I read this, it, it just, it's incredible. He said to his people in his last sermon, you have experienced a calamity this is a calamitous thing, a calamitous event. It's an awful thing what is happening. He said, there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest misery. You know, all of us, we experience firsthand the emotion of our pain when we are hurt or offended or where we go through trial or we go through misery. And the pastor says there's more evil in one sin. Oh, that we would experience sin in that manner. Feel the pain of sin rather than misery. Sin is sin. There is more evil in one act of sin than in what happened at the World Trade Centers, than the Holocaust. There's more evil in one sin that we have committed than all the disastrous sins that have happened in the world. You know, people say it on positive terms. If I was the only one alive, Christ will still, still would have died for me. And that's kind of a consoling thing. But that's a real, there's a darker side to that. That means our sins alone is so offensive, so wicked, it required the death of Christ. Right? Even if, if I was the only one alive, it's not that, oh, it's just a little stain. I, I, don't, I don't need the whole death of Jesus. He'll just give a pint and wash away Jesus' sin. 
This is only one sinner. No, there is enough evil in one person that requires the death of Christ. The second step is to see sin as it is, to treat it seriously, to see that how it dishonors God and abuses mercy, how sin despises grace, how one act presumes on forgiveness, it defiles worship, service, and fellowship, it stains and taints, poisons, and destroys everything good and holy. That's the second step to mortifying sin. First is to see Christ. Second is to see sin as God sees it. <coughs> Third step is to go for the kill. Is to kill it. Destroy it. And we do this by effort. By exhausting effort. Strenuous, vigorous discipline. John Owen wrote, Christians must not try to coexist with sin. We can't ask for a treaty, ask for a compromise, for coexistence. We must remove it completely. Christians must be always at the task of mortifying sin because sin perpetually stalks him. Therefore, he must be continually mortifying it. This is a duty he cannot rest from until he rests in glory. Give sin an inch, it will take a mile. If it can gain a foothold in a Christian's life, it will send forth roots and grow like weeds. It will use him and abuse him and inflict as much disaster upon him as possible. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire will be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head? It proceeds toward its height by degrees, making good the ground in half, not God by hardness. Now nothing can prevent this but mortification that withers the root and strikes at the head of sin every hour so that whatever it aims at, it is crossed in. Resolution 56, John and Edwards, never to give over, nor in the least to slacken in my fight against my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. He later said, he must see sin as a sworn enemy and commit himself to slaying it wherever and whenever it rears its head. Sin cannot be annihilated through legalism, monasticism, Pietism, asceticism, Phariseeism, celibacy, self-flagellation, confessional booths, rosary beads, hail marys, or any other external means. The instrument of mortification is the Holy Spirit and His power is the energy that works in Christians to carry out the process. Be filled, be led, walk and live by the Holy Spirit. May that leading lead to the valley of humiliation where you depend wholly on the power of the Holy Spirit. And may that cause you to commit to spiritual disciplines. And may that first discipline be mortification of sin. A radical commitment against sin. Close with this. Christ said it best. Your eye causes it to sin. Gouge it out. 
The left arm causes you to sin, cut it off. The leg causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter into heaven as a main man, a paralyzed, handicapped man, than to enter into hell as a whole man. May we give our physical disciplines, physical effort, to mortifying sin in our lives. Lord, you called us to be watchful, be ever vigilant. For our enemy prowls around like a lion, waiting to devour us. And in our own church, we've seen many that have been devoured by sin. Many who, with joy, embrace the Word of God. But after some time, they, in hardness of heart, overrun by sin, they are today no longer walking with the Lord. Lord, we know that we are none better. We are, they are not more sinners. We are not less of sinners than they. We are not more holy, more righteous. It is by grace we are where we are. Lord, we pray that you would grant us wisdom in this area of being disciplined, training ourselves, exercising ourselves physically for spiritual ends and that our first task would be to deal a death blow to sin, destroying it, killing it wherever it is found. Lord, may you grant grace to all of us. Be merciful to us. Shine your face upon us, Lord. Help us in our journey to the value of humiliation that we might lie there and kiss the sweet flowers that grow there and that we might experience the freedom of maturity, the freedom of holiness, the freedom of running in the path of your commands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.